Greetings, rabble-rousers. My name is Jessa McLean. Welcome to Blueprints for Disruption, a weekly discussion dedicated to amplifying activism across Turtle Island. Together, we will examine tactics, explore motivations, and celebrate successes in disrupting the status quo. This podcast is a proud part of New Left Media. We've labeled this episode Autistic Resistance, The Foundations. It's an in-depth discussion with Lulu Larconcil, an autistic and disabled advocate and academic. That really doesn't sum up all the things that Lulu does. Um, you're going to hear some sorely needed myth-busting. Uh, it's going to be a critical look at so-called progressive policies that are negatively impacting disabled people. Lulu is going to help us all get out of the past in terms of what we think we know autistic and neurodivergent people need to thrive. It really is incredible what we can learn if we just listen. Welcome to Blueprints of Disruption, Lulu. I am so happy to have you on the show. You've been a wealth of knowledge for me for um, a few years now, and so I'm excited to share your voice with other people. Um, can you go ahead and please introduce yourself to everybody? Sure. Um, so my name is Lulu Larconciel, uh, and she, her. Um, I am an autistic and disabled advocate, activist, and academic uh, in uh, currently uh, uh, living in St. Catharines at Brock University, uh, studying uh, young autistic people's well-being. Um, and I have been a sort of political and social justice volunteer and uh, advocate and member uh, for quite some time. Uh, also being queer, I also have a lot of uh, sort of strange and exciting uh, experiences from queer advocacy, um, although most of those are not, not very novel and have been on many podcasts before, so probably I'll focus more on the disability angle, uh, which I, I feel like really hasn't been represented that well in the past. Thank you, Lulu. I mean, that's definitely been my experience um, organizing on the left. I've never seen um, a group, uh, a so-called equity-seeking group, marginalized more than the disabled community. Um, it's it's shocking to see on the left. I would say, yeah, it's not so much of like a comparative thing either, right? Um, and it's, I, I mean, I think, you know, being queer being a woman, all of the groups that I am a part of have been horribly, uh, you know, prejudiced and, and up, up, uh, against and, and oppressed. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's a kind of hypocrisy, uh, where the same behavior or similar behavior, uh, on the part of politicians, uh, towards disabled people uh, that they absolutely revile in other politicians when those politicians do that to women or whatever other group. Um, and I, I do think that that is quite an interesting uh, phenomenon. Um, but I, I, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not big on the comparisons because then you can sometimes get into sort of conflating different kinds of problems. You know, black autistic people face mountains um, 
uh, exponentially more violence than white autistic people, for example. Um, and even within our party, uh, you know, within various political structures, within academic institutions, <laughs> um, e even within, you know, most aspects of society, um, uh, it, again, and I'm sure you talk about intersectionality and, you know, every interview you have, I'm sure. Um, and that's important because, uh, yeah, it is, it is 100% true that d disabled people are marginalized and pushed aside in left circles in a way that is just completely absurd. Uh, and it's, it's contradictory to everything that those, those left circles say that they're standing for and say that they're um, fighting for. Uh, and then to, to turn around and, and uh, sort of do the opposite to the disabled folks in their midst, it's, it is startling how common it is. Absolutely. I understand you're kind of checking me there on the comparison. I do appreciate that because you're 100% right. It's just, yeah, it's just, I expect better, you know, when you see, you know, ab abled people chairing the disabled committee, um, you wouldn't see that otherwise. So, yeah, it is very interesting. I can't imagine an organization which is committed to social justice and anti-oppression, uh, you know, hiring a man to be the women's coordinator, but you will find someone who's not disabled as an accessibility coordinator. And I don't understand how that happens. I don't understand how that's not an actual expert on disability, an actual disabled person being put in that role, but just a non-disabled person who's getting that tacked on to their other job. Um, as though it's just, you know, some other task, as though it's not a critical tool to ensure that, uh, you know, a fifth of the population has access to your organization. Yeah, you frame it as a, like a dismissal of its importance. It's true. I thought of the paternalism that goes into that, thinking that, you know, if even if they thought it was critical, it could not be left to disabled folks to do. Um, there are interesting conversations that go on about, yeah, whether whether disabled people are capable. Um, and this is something this is something which is used uh, as an excuse across systems. Right. This is an excuse that's used to deny people um, uh, accommodations if you already seem like you're capable of doing something, even if you're disabled and you're saying, hey, I need this accommodation. Um, uh, you know, it's it's used to to kind of mock people. It's used to to kind of try and drag someone down when they ask for something and say, oh, well, if you can't do this without it and really try to make you feel bad about it. Um, and it's unfortunately, yeah, it really does lead people to these bizarre um, and incredibly cruel opinions uh, and suggestions that disabled folks aren't capable of moderating our own spaces and uh, deciding what accessibility is necessary. That has to go through non-disabled gatekeepers in every organization I've ever been part of, which is horrifying, dis disturbing. You... Um you listed a bunch of A's when you introduced yourself. You're an academic, you're an advocate, you're an activist, but you're autistic. 
yes. if you don't mind, I would like to focus on that because and and the comment that you made earlier about capacity and misconceptions. So you seemingly, you, you know, you listed a whole bunch of things that you do. I know you left off a lot of stuff because we're going to have to talk <laughs> about the ND and NDP later. And so you do a lot. You're breaking mix- misconceptions about people with autism right there. Um, autistic people. Autistic people. Thank you. <laughs> what what other misconceptions are people holding, especially on the left? You know, comrades that, you know, will be listening about autistic people and particularly their ability to advocate. Yeah. Um, so this is an interesting, and especially that last sort of part of the question about, uh, advocating, um, because yeah, I'm, I'm autistic. Um, I'm, a queer, uh, autistic who was, uh, like who, and I'm a cis woman, um, and, uh, among autistic people, uh, women are horrifically underdiagnosed, uh, and this has led to one huge conception, uh, misconception, which is, uh, a lot of people still believe, um, yeah, no, this is also true on the left. I was just checking in my brain. Um, yeah, a lot of people believe that uh, autism is a, a, a boy's thing. Uh, this is a, a stereotype, uh, which has been true for quite some time uh, uh, across uh, cultures. They have this stereotype across, uh, and this is partially due to some really flawed research that came out quite early on, uh, which uh, called autism a a male brain disorder, uh, which, yeah, it was just silly. Uh, quite frankly, it was just a really silly theory. It's been misproven a number of times. Uh, but this, this myth persists. Uh, and the reason that I use that one first is just because it's a really easy, obvious myth. Uh, it's, it's very clearly a piece of misinformation that, uh, that, that there are more autistic uh, boys than girls, but this is something people believe wholeheartedly. Um, and, you know, research over the last 10 years all contradicts that and says that girls have been wildly underdiagnosed uh, and, and wildly underrecognized as autistic. Girls have gone without accommodations, without recognition, uh, and they've ended up in severe mental distress they've ended up with depression, they've ended up suicidal, many of them are no longer with us. A horrifying study was recently revealed right here in Ontario from 2010 to 2016. Autistic people were six times more likely to die than non-autistic people with other matching uh, demographics. Um, That mortality rate doesn't come out of thin air. and a lot of it is due to misconceptions that lead to autistic people going unrecognized, unaccommodated. Uh, and the reason that I really focus on that is that the way people conceptualize autism right now uh, is based on all of these different myths. Uh, and they're sort of piecing these different stereotypes and myths and things they've seen in sensationalized movies and things they've heard from, you know, their 
their neighbor's brothers got a kid who's autistic and so they know from hearing about that uh and and that doesn't actually result in knowledge right that doesn't actually result in understanding a situation especially something as complicated as the human brain which is where autism you know is located uh autism is the way that a brain is wired it's it's the way that a a brain and nervous system are connected to each other and the way that the nervous system interacts with the world around it. My cat <clears throat> is just <clears throat> causing some trouble, so I just have to get him settled so that I can make sure he's not going to... Are you going to just chill? Or this, this isn't just any cat, by the way. The, <laughs> this cat has been immortalized on fridge magnets <laughs> around around the globe, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, another thing about uh, autism is uh, a, a trait of being autistic is... When you like something, uh, just going ahead and letting yourself like it. Uh, and one of the things I really like is um, cats. And my cat is the best cat. As any cat owner knows, um, your cat is the best cat. That's just science. That's how that works. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I definitely also love um, making buttons. Again, thanks to advocacy. Uh, but I got a button maker for uh, as a graduation present uh and so i I have definitely made buttons and magnets of my cat and sent them uh all over the world actually not even just all over canada so (laughs) i we we have one on my fridge i caught my daughter playing with it the other day i'm like no that's fitzy go stop he's he's got a cab along the bottom but um you talked about accommodations right And, and i think Right now, uh, when we think of dealing with autistic people, I, I say it because I feel like that's how people look at it, not because they're thinking of accommodations, but what they're using right now is a lot of ABA therapy, right? If you're in the NDP, you're getting talking and points how important this therapy is, and um, it's a large basis of um, our funding model, Um is that how we should be accommodating? Is this, Are these the kind of... I know your answer, obviously, but um, what's up with that? I mean, why is it so focused on that and, and not actually accommodations? Yeah, this is uh, an excellent question. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's actually uh, also a good point to put the question in because it really is a fundamental part of how people misunderstand autism and autistic people. Um A lot of people will see me uh, doing advocacy. They'll see me on, um, you know, the last few years, the only reason I've been able to be so successful is the last few years, we've all been um, doing things remotely. And so I've been able to do things from my own house. Uh, And that's where most of my accommodations are uh, in my house when I have to leave my house and and I have to, you know, pack the accommodations I can take to go. uh, Normally, I end up uh, not being able to do as as much stuff uh, and not being able to, you know, you say at the beginning, I I do a lot. Uh, I I do much less uh, when I have to do it without all of my accommodations. Um, And... uh, the reason that all of these accommodations are so helpful to me now, I've got things like uh, stim toys, which are just little. I've got, for example, a little three D printed uh, worm 
that kind of clicks as as you as you wiggle it along. Um, and this is something that I can hold in my hands while I'm having a serious political meeting, and I can feel the way that this. Uh, it's a little bit stri- of a like a stripey kind of plastic. If you've ever held on to like a 3D printed thing before, you know there's like a grain to it. And so I can feel that grain and I can feel the way that the, the different interlocking parts of this thing are moving and I can process that and I can hear this distinct little clicky noise that it makes. And I can do all of that while I'm in a meeting so that my sensory system, which needs a serious amount of input at all times, is regulated. And that means I can actually process what that politician's saying, and then I can respond to them with the information that is there in my brain ready to respond to. Now, if I'm sitting in a meeting room and there's flickering lights, which are giving me a crazy headache and my eyes hurt and everything's way too bright in there and it's actually kind of cold and I'm sitting on this chair that is just, I cannot sit comfortably in and because of professionalism, I can't pull my feet up on the chair and I can't cross my legs. So I can't have that sensory input either and I can't be fidgeting with something and I can't have anything in my hands and I have to be looking at this person's face in front of me and I have to be monitoring my own facial expression and I have to be doing all of these things. I don't have the energy left to listen to what they're saying. I don't have the energy left to come up with something to respond with because my brain is too busy processing all of this sensory information with absolutely no regulating tools. Um, And the reason that I explain it this way is because I could be explaining a political meeting that I took part in as part of a, a writing executive, or I could be explaining math class when I was eight. And they're both the exact same. Exactly the same. Autistic people are human beings. Uh, (laughs) When we grow, uh, we actually have mostly the same needs. Uh, And we actually go through the world as unique individuals. Um, And that means problems that we have as kids are going to persist as adults. Um, now, a lot of people's solution, like you say, to the problem, uh, a lot of people's solution to having to deal with autistic kids is, uh, uh, yeah, right now, behavioral intervention. Um, and so this means that uh, when a child is unable to sit still in the lights without playing with anything, Uh, and pay attention and look in their teacher's eyeballs, they are having bad behavior. They are having problematic behavior. Um, And so they are referred to behavioral intervention to change their external behavior. Um, Now, some of this behavioral intervention starts with like a behavioral assessment Uh, where they try to uh, pin the cause down on a narrow uh, little list, uh, and then they try to change the behavior. Uh, And so they they show the kid the behavior they want to see, uh, and then they they tell the kid it's their turn. And if the kid does the behavior... um, Sit still. uh, Sit still, look at me in the eyes talk out loud, say this exact word back to me, point to this thing, 
whatever else, put this thing on that's uncomfortable for you, um, you know, whatever it is, interrupt what you're doing to wave at this stranger, whatever it is. Um, and these are all the more benign ones, to be honest. There are much worse, um, uh, you know, and, and then if, if the kid does it, then they get a lot of um, praise and positive feedback and a lot of the time like stickers or candies uh, or they get uh, to play with their favorite toy or they get to have their comfort item or whatever else. Um, And then uh, if they do it wrong, then they get told to do it again. Positively, with a big smile, they get told to do it again. Why is that bad, Lulu? You know, a lot of parents would hear that and go, um, yeah, I, I do a form of that kind of every Absolutely. day, you know? Absolutely. Um, I got my um, kid inside with an M&M yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the problem is there is a reason that autistic children need accommodations. Uh, autistic people are wired differently our bodies and brains react to the world around us differently than non-autistic people. Um, behavior interventions goals are based on non-autistic people. Uh, these are goals that are based on what non-autistic people uh, are expected to and uh, normally uh, able to do without thinking, even um, things like like making eye contact, uh, for example. Um, but for an autistic kid, uh, something like sitting still without playing with something uh, or making eye contact with somebody is painful. Now, here's the other thing. Another misconception is that autistic kids reacting to sensory stuff is because they don't like it. Uh, this is phrasing that's used, or that they're scared of it. People will say, oh, my child is scared of the vacuum cleaner because she covers her ears every time I turn it on. And that's not fear. Maybe that becomes fear of sensory pain, but sensory pain is not dislike. It's not fear. When you're overloaded in one of your senses, it feels as though you are going to burst. When I have to like go outside into a bright sun, sunny day with no sunglasses on, it's not that I'm kind of uncomfortable. It's that I'm in pain. It hurts. Um, and what happens when we reduce that to behavior, when we say, oh no, well the external behavior, oh, she's, she, she screams and hides when we take her outside in the sunshine. We have to teach her to stand still in the sunshine. We have to teach her to stand here like the other kids are standing. So uh, we're going we're gonna to enforce her until she does that, until she just stands here like the other kids are standing. And then you've got a little kid who's in pain and who's not telling you she's in pain because she doesn't know how to describe that and who's not able to go anywhere because they've prevented her from going anywhere and hiding, and she's not able to do anything to escape the sensory pain, and she's also not allowed to acknowledge that sensory pain out loud. 
I don't know who might believe that sensory pain is going to disappear because of that. Because what actually happens is it builds up inside of that person. And autistic people have so much sensory pain and emotional overwhelm and informational overwhelm and change overwhelm going on inside of our brains and bodies at all times that what inevitably happens is the dam bursts and we have serious distress because of that, because we are completely overloaded. Um, And again, people want to treat that behaviorally. People want to say that an autistic child who has been stressed and overwhelmed all day by the sensory hell that is our public school system has been absolutely decimated by the lights and the screaming of the other kids and having to look up from the work that they just want to be doing all day long and then getting another in trouble kid for fidgeting getting getting in trouble for fidgeting having to try and hold yourself still and then they get home of course they're going to cry of course they're going to need to release that pent-up energy because we pushed them down all day long and then we expected them not to come back up into their their human form. These are people. Children are people. And it really seems like folks forget that, these behavior folks. Because children are not a series of behaviors. Uh, they're human beings. And that's not acknowledged in behavioral approaches. It's really not. Um, and, you know, <laughs> behavioral conditioning has a absolutely a a a history, you know, and they talk about the evidence behind behavioral conditioning and yeah, let's draw it to its root, which is, you know, conversion therapy, the root of behavioral analysis. Um, Lovis and his team, uh, his team was also foundational in queer conversion therapy uh, because that was a behavior they didn't like. And just the same way that queer conversion therapy Uh, I shouldn't even call that therapy, but queer conversion practices um, attempt to change a queer person's behaviors so they won't be queer anymore and attempt to convince a person uh, uh, through that, through behaviorally controlling them, um, that that they're not queer anymore. You know, Uh, we've also got autistic conversion practices, ABA uh, and, and behavioral conditioning and behavioral intervention. Um, And these are are practices that aim to make autistic people uh, act like we're not autistic. And that doesn't just mean they're trying to make us make eye contact. It means they're trying to make us act as though we are not experiencing the world the way that we are. When you're in sensory overload, you can act like you're not in sensory overload. And that doesn't change for a second the fact that that's what you are experiencing. And after a while, that adds up. Again, there are really horrifying studies showing that autistic people are considerably more likely to die young, not just by things like random unexplained heart conditions, uh, but also uh, one of our highest killers uh, is suicide. And when we've asked autistic people in research, why? Why are so many of you suicidal? What autistic people have answered with is I am expected to act like somebody else all the time. I can't do it. 
I'm burnt out. I'm tired. I don't want to live here if I have to act like someone else. Uh, And we know this. Research has turned this up countless times. Is this what we call masking, Lulu? It is. It is. This is commonly called masking uh, in in autistic communities, the the act of having to cover yourself up and present a version of yourself that isn't autistic, that isn't quite you, that isn't authentic. And a lot of people look at this and they say, hey, I have to do that too. Um, for work, or I have to do that when I'm around people that don't like me, or whatever else. Uh, and the reason that I, I you know, didn't uh, 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 open by just trying to explain it as, as you know, covering yourself up is because it's it's an attempt to make us change from the outside in, and s- society. The education systems, psychology, these institutions uh, have tried really hard to make autistic people not autistic anymore from the outside in. Um, the same worldwide institution that certifies be certified behavioral uh, specialists in Ontario, uh, that same in- international institution also certifies the behavior analysts at the Judge Roddenberg Center in the States who are currently administering electric shocks to autistic children, mostly black and brown children, uh, who were never given the chance to develop any accommodations or any other type of, of life and instead are in an institution uh, getting electric shocked uh, for their behavior because that institution can't see past behavior. Uh, And this is why anyone who's offering behaviorism and behavioral intervention as a solution for autism is dangerous. That's someone who doesn't understand what autism is and what autistic people need. I'm going to give you another chance to smash a misconception. Um, Yeah. One that I admittedly needed to hear about, um, and that's non-speaking autistic people. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the pushback that I would hear um, in terms of ABA um, and self-advocacy is that basically um, folks who can't speak can't advocate for themselves. And so you and other autistic people who do verbally communicate um, are speaking over them. And, you know, only their caregivers really can speak to their lived experience. Yeah. So let me tell you, this is actually, this is a very common, you're right, another common misconception. Um, And this is actually something where I do believe a lot of people need to grow their understanding. And this was true for myself as well. I'm autistic. My big brother is also autistic. My big brother was one of the first folks uh, that was in Oise's, <clears throat> uh, in Oise's original um, studies when they realized autistic people could also be gifted. Uh, and both me and my brother are obviously, I'm, a, I'm speaking. Um, uh, uh, the reason that's obvious is because uh, we don't have enough funding in alternative communication to have voices that actually 
uh, modulate the way mine does yet, uh, which is very unfortunate uh, and something I'll get into. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, and this is something that even I believed for a little while, which is that um, you know, not non-speaking autistics, uh, um, they they can't add to the conversation themselves, and so we have to listen to. Um, the 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 broadly non autistic parents around them, and that's that's who knows best. Uh, but that uh, opinion of that that I also used to hold uh, got smashed pretty quickly when I met non speaking autistic people myself. Um, and this is something that, like you know, growing up, um, I I I grew up in the same society as the rest of you, where we devalue disabled people. We seriously devalue disabled people who have been labeled with things like severe and low functioning and profoundly disabled. Uh, We immediately, as a society, we decide that life must be terrible. That must be a, a low down life because of those labels. Those labels do something to us. They impact how we feel about the people they are used for. And those are labels frequently used for non-speaking autistic people. And that really gets in your head. Uh, however, non-speaking autistic advocates are absolutely rocking the advocacy world and the world in general right now. Um, I'm uh, at the time of recording this uh, in the last week, actually, um, but maybe I'll just say recently. Um, <laughs> recently, a a clip went viral of Elizabeth Bonker, who is a non-speaking autistic uh, girl in the United States, who uh, was valedictorian for her class um, this year and for her graduating class and her her graduation speech, which was delivered um, by an AAC device, which is an alternative and augmentative communication device. Um, uh, Her speech went viral and a lot of people got to see it and it challenged a lot of people. Um, People really do not expect a non-speaking autistic person uh, to have competence. Uh, And this is what non-speaking advocates, the very first lesson that I learned from non-speaking autistic advocates, uh, uh, and this is folks like um, uh, Cal Montgomery, um, the, the very first lesson is presume competence. Uh, And this is something that we fail to do as a society. We fail to presume competence in non-speaking autistics. And what that leads to and what that falls from is these behavior ideas. Because what non-speaking folks want us to know is that non-speaking does not equal non-thinking. And it does not equal incapable. Um, but people do have this in their heads that a non-speaking autistic person uh, doesn't have mental capacity. Uh, or this other one, which is very common, which is mental age. Uh, people will say, oh, yeah, my oh my brother is 18, but he has the mental age of eight or whatever. Or mental capacity, um, right? Mental capacity of a six-year-old. Um, and 
look, these people are repeating what they have been told by a supposed medical professional. Um, the problem is that it matters how they determined that. It matters how they decided this guy has a low IQ. Um, I don't know, a, a lot of people are not aware of this, uh, but IQ tests uh, are actually entirely dependent on motor capacity and your motor coordination. Um, because you need to be able to, especially as a child, for a child's IQ test, you need to be able to point to the word that the person said, or you need to be able to um, uh, uh, write a particular word, or you might need to speak out loud and repeat a particular word or spell a word out loud with your, with your voice. Um, and all of those are motor tasks, actually. <laughs> those, those don't actually determine whether somebody knows that thing. Uh, it just determines whether they can do the motor task to prove to you that they know the thing. Now, th it's pretty basic and, and obvious when, when we lay it out that way that these IQ tests are not doing a good job at measuring capacity. They're just doing a good job at measuring motor function. Um, and unfortunately, what that leads to is, is people thinking that non-speakers are incapable. Um, I have a, a good friend uh, here in Ontario, an advocate who uh, works with the International Association uh, for Spelling as Communication. His name is William Zavarez. Uh, and uh, William grew up here in Ontario. He's, uh, he's, he's only just starting high school now. Um, and he grew up in behavior classes and behavior programs, uh, because he didn't speak, uh, because he didn't talk. And because when he was overwhelmed, he screamed and hit and flailed his arms and tried to get away from the thing that was hurting him. Uh, but nobody ever asked what in this room is hurting you. Before he could speak, before he had a communication device, nobody went and brought him into the room and pointed at different parts of it and said, is that overwhelming to you? Is that too much? And let him give an affirmative or negative answer. That was never provided. What was provided was behavioral intervention to change how he was reacting to those stimulus and how he was reacting to not being able to share his opinions and his feelings and his needs because he didn't have a form of communication. Now, when William did get access to communication, and this happens right now, unfortunately, pretty much by luck, when parents allow themselves to be exposed to other autistic advocates and when parents allow themselves to be exposed to non-speakers who have developed systems of communication. Um, but when William was able to access communication, he uses spelling to communicate, which means he has managed to get enough motor training so that he can spell words out on a letter board uh, and uh, his communication partner goes ahead and writes that down. Um, uh, or says it out loud if he's on a call. Um, and this is a valid form of communication. Since finding that communication, 
Uh, William's doing normal school classes. He's able to actually do the kind of work that is up to his his the caliber of his brain. Uh, and and a few years ago, he was still getting toddler books read to him because he wasn't able to out loud read them back to the teacher. Uh, just over and over again, because they thought that repetition was going to teach him because that's how behavior works. When you do a behavior over and over and over again, um, eventually um, you're supposed to learn to that that's, that's the, the right way of doing things. Um, but unfortunately, uh, apraxia and dyspraxia and other motor connection coordination conditions like William and a lot of non-speakers have aren't behaviors. They're not behavioral. That's an actual physical motor problem with the way that the brain is sending signals. And that's something that can be worked through, but not by a behavioral interventionist and not by repetition. You need an actual physical therapist or a physio or sometimes an occupational therapist, but only if they've been trained in kinesiology, because that's a motor problem. That's a problem of the actual physical connections. Um, but non-speaking kids are put into these behavioral programs. Um, and yeah, every once in a while, they, they learn how to perform a behavior. Absolutely. Um, sometimes you can uh, uh, hear stories from non-speakers who will talk about... Um, behaviors uh, and actions that they learned how to perform even though they weren't feeling that way and even though that's not what they wanted to say because they would get treated better if they performed it and like if that sounds cruel to you then it is because these are children we're talking about not employees we're talking about children uh, and these standards imposed on them you know I think like when anybody looks at it from even if they can't understand autistic people. I think a lot of people's empathy rides, unfortunately, on being able to understand why someone would be upset by lights when they cannot fathom that, you know, or, and so it stops. Like, there's no level of, there's no attempt to kind of yeah. provide accommodation or empathy without fully understanding why. It seems so unreasonable, like, when we see meltdowns, and, and you know what I mean? Like, that's just seen as bad behavior often, and um, it's just, yeah, I, I do appreciate you kind of doing so much work in breaking these stigmas and, you know, trying to show people what actual accommodation looks like, what access to communication looks like. It's not all the same for everybody. Yeah. I, I, I want to just say I really appreciate you bringing that up because one of the one of the ways that this kind of misinformation and these kind of stigmas are, are being perpetuated is that folks aren't hearing these messages. They're not hearing from the people who are actually most impacted, like non-speakers. You know, the work that I do is, is all 100 percent informed by the non-speaking autistic leaders uh, that I'm following. I'm not, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, uh, uh, I, I didn't learn any of this by myself. This comes from, uh, f folks that are living through absolute hell because our society believes that being non-speaking is some kind of challenging behavior. Um, and one of the things that I've learned is, uh, you know, I, I, I promise I'll talk more about uh, advocacy and politics, but, um, as, as a researcher and as a, a teacher and a student, um, 
at this time, I've actually been really startled. I did a, I did a guest lecture in a, a fourth year, like final year disability studies, uh, a child and youth studies class. Um, and it was like a, a, the disability issues class for senior child and youth studies undergrads. Um, and I did a guest lecture and I, I talked about how autistic kids experience the world. And I, I had a little chart that had, you know, the behavior on one side and then the experience on the other side. And so the behavior might be um, uh, can't sit still. Um, and then the experience might be I feel like there's electricity going up and down my legs. And if I don't run to get it out, then I can't think about anything else. I feel like pain in my legs. I'm cramping up now. What am I supposed to do? Um, and I made this little chart. And to me, that seemed, these things seemed obvious, right? Because I'm autistic. This is how I experience the world. Um, but to those students, to those child and youth study students who are in their final year, I had someone put up her hand and say, specifically, I just want to say, I've never thought about it like that. And that's horrifying to me that four years through child and youth studies, the children have not been asked, the students have not been asked, how do you think the kid is experiencing this situation? They haven't sat down and thought about it. And I really, that makes me worry. And I think that's the same problem in politics, is that these people have never sat and thought about, oh, how might this experience be for someone who has a different brain than me, who has a different nervous system, whose body reacts to external stimulus differently than mine. And it's really hard sometimes to put yourself in, in someone else's shoes when you've never had the opportunity to hear from, from people like that, who ne you've never had access to the resources. So I don't, I don't blame people that don't have access to the resources, but once you've been given those resources and once you've been told these children are not being naughty, they're in pain and they need accommodations, and you still say, no, it's just a behavior problem, that's cruelty because children are people, which is something I shouldn't have to keep reminding politicians, but I do. People being able to communicate like their experience doesn't come naturally though to, especially when they're not diagnosed. Um, Part of the reason there's such a huge phenomenon of missed diagnosis, um, and this is not just women and trans folks. This is also uh, black kids and indigenous kids and Asian kids and um, uh, Latin American kids. This is literally all over the place. Um, the, the sort of assessment criteria um, for, for autism is very much focused on the white upper middle class boys uh, little boys that they were studying at the time when they developed that criteria. Um, the actual criteria, like the exclusion criteria for the studies that they did to form autism assessment criteria, the exclusion criteria mandated that only boys were included. Um, so there's actually, <laughs> there's like millions of autistic people all over the world who are unrecognized and unacknowledged and trying to live through this world which is designed not just not for us but actively against us a lot of the time and when you're not diagnosed 
you think you're just weak. You think you're just not doing things well enough. I'm 100% sure that people are going to listen to this podcast and they're going to hear these traits that I'm talking about and they're going to hear the way that the world is experienced by autistics and they're going to say, wait a minute, everybody doesn't feel that way? Everybody doesn't go through crisis because they are they are made to look in people's eyeballs? Maybe I might be autistic? And that happens every time I speak publicly. Someone comes up to me afterwards and says, I have been miserable because I thought I was broken and it turns out I'm autistic and now I don't know what to do. And normally the reason you don't know what to do is because, yeah, you don't have the terminology. You don't know what, how the systems work. You don't know how the sensory system works. You weren't actually explained that past what each of the five senses are. Uh, We were never taught sensory regulation as kids. You don't know how to explain it. And that's one of the big problems with not only, you know, undiagnosed adults, but children. We go to children and we punish them for behaving distressed. uh, And we haven't taught them yet what it means to emotionally regulate, what it means to regulate your sensory system in a plain language way that kids can understand. That's just not something that's done. Or how to accommodate um, themselves. Or how right? to accommodate. Like, absolutely. Don't even know where to start to feel better, you know, until, you know, there is some sort of, I think, intervention or I a lot of the stuff that you do is building peer groups as well um, and hanging out with other neurodivergent people and knowing how they you know, their accommodations, their snoozle rooms, their, <laughs> you know, and that's, that's really, you know, from my personal experience, that, that was really missing. And I'm so glad you talk about it the way that you do, Lulu. <laughs> oh, well, it's, and that's the thing. It's important because so many people have had to go without. Um, and that's just something that, you know, Oh, you're going to get me going. Sorry. Um, that's just something. Don't worry. <laughs> um, no, that's that's one of the really big fears is even the kids that grow up knowing they're autistic. And that's this is the big thing. Another thing, like everywhere in disability issues, you see people trying to split up into binaries. You see people trying to say visible and invisible disability. You see people try to say mental and physical disability. You try to say all of these different binaries. You try to say high functioning and low functioning. Um, and you try to to bust stuff up. And honestly, even the people who are recognized because they're still put into these weird ass binaries that don't fit the human experience, um, they still actually don't get access to the support they really need. They just get told, uh, you know, oh, here's here's how you can behave like other people do. Um, and that means that even even folks that are recognized, you know, it's not even undiagnosed and diagnosed folks because diagnosed folks also go without accommodation because they're essentially told they're not trying hard enough to not be autistic anymore, um, which is horrifying. Um, Who wants and that that's anyway? Why it's so important. <laughs> I know. Um, it would be terrible. <laughs> The world um, would be a lesser place. Um, but that's the thing of it. And when when we assume that we understand the experiences of somebody totally different from ourselves, we often miss out on stuff. And that is what has happened with autistic people and with non-speaking autistic people, especially. When I started actually hanging out with non-speaking autistic people, um, 
I I still had this idea in my head of like, well, you know, I I don't have things like as bad as non-speakers, and so you know maybe I maybe I am mild, um, but I hang out with non-speaking people, and I have more in common with them. When they explain their experiences, when I get to read, I have a, a book of poetry here by Hannah Emerson, who is an absolutely phenomenal non-speaking poet. Um, Hannah Emerson's book is called The Kissing of Kissing. Um, and when I read her poems, when I see uh, folks like William, who uh, I talked about earlier, William Savarez, who puts together these essays and poetry and this incredible connective communication, I have more in common with that than I do with the average non-autistic person that I have to go talk to at a school event or a party. I can't connect with those people the way I can connect with non-speakers. And the way that the autistic brain works is not more or less. It's not one way or the other. They've actually done neurological studies where they've tried to say, oh, what does the autistic brain look like? What does a severely autistic brain look like? Uh, And what they found was that there is no one autistic brain. There is a non-autistic brain. They had a neurotypical control group and their brains all mostly functioned the same. They followed the same patterns as each other. But autistic people's brains, there was no one pattern. Everyone's brain was doing something divergent, something different. And that's what we have in connection with each other. And that's why we can understand each other. And that's why peer support is so important. Because somebody with a brain that does the the typical wiring does not understand what life is like for someone whose brain does not do that typical wiring and does not follow those typical paths. Um, And you're 100% right. Peer support is a huge part of what I do in my spare time and my advocacy. Um, But it's also what I really advocate for, uh, for autistic kids, especially autistic kids who are struggling with things like institutional schools and things like families that don't understand them. Let's talk a bit about your advocacy, right? A lot of folks tuning in are advocates themselves and um, we talk about like a, a diverse amount of tactics and the need to diversify our tactics and not everybody kind of goes at at tackling the status quo the same way. But when I look at the stuff that you do, um, not just uh, single handedly, but the stuff that you've shared with me um, from non-autistic poetry nights to your NDNDP um, group you seem to use all the tactics. Uh, well, a lot of them. Which one brings you the most joy, though, Lulu? Community building. Community building brings me the most joy. And in my opinion, it has been the most impactful work that I've done. The fact that I've been able to bring neurodivergent folks together who otherwise would not ever have met And I have been able to get them into rooms where they can share their experiences uh, in whatever communication method works for them, where they are not feeling pressured to speak out loud, where they are not feeling pressured to put their cameras on and all of these things. And the fact that I have managed to get folks into rooms and that they've become friends 
and that now they have that person that they can hang out with, that person they can talk to, that person they can comment on their Facebook status when they're sick, um, that the fact that, yeah, the fact that as humans, we're capable of bringing other humans together um, and, and building communities, I am 100% swept away whenever we have events and and meetings and things like this. Um, you mentioned the NDNDP, that's the Neurodivergent NDP. Uh, so that's a group of uh, volunteers and advocates uh, and um, allies and NDP members uh, and folks that really want to see uh, neurodivergent issues advanced on and progressed on. Because right now, unfortunately, progressive parties like the NDP uh, who are progressive in many other ways, uh, are still living, you know, in in the past when it comes to things like autism and mental health. Um, and when all of your solutions to neurological and psychological conditions are behavioral, you're really missing the point of the problem, right? You're not actually getting to the root of what's going on and what people are experiencing. Um, and slapping Band-Aids on on wounds, you know, without actually closing them, as we know, does not help, does not work, and actually leads to a huge potential for, like, serious infection and serious harm that gets in because you didn't do what you needed to do to begin with. Um, and so with the Neurodivergent NDP, we actually formed because a number of neurodivergent NDP members and advocates uh, were essentially just tired of hearing the same old, you know, stigmatizing language and uh, bizarre, archaic, supposed solutions uh, to the quote-unquote autism file. Um, and uh, this is one of the things that I find very dehumanizing is the way that uh, autistic kids are talked about by politicians. Um, that there's a, a movement of calling, saying that autistic children who are not being behaviorally modified are, and I quote, languishing away. Uh, this is the kind of language they use to describe children who are reacting to the world around them, which is not built for them. Um, and it's, it's just really horrifying. They really paint it as some kind of like, like epidemic. You know, we have an actual plague going on. Uh, but it's autistic children that get treated like they're some kind of contagion or something like this. Um, and, and that is really unfortunate. And so uh, a number of us got together. Uh, and I have to give a shout out to folks like Kamal Ahmed and Spencer Gallup, who were a couple of the first folks that really inspired me and like uplifted me and made me believe that we could actually do something together. Sorry, I'm going to cry, because we actually have done something together. Uh, we've done something really amazing. Um, I had to also shout out to Eric, Eric Eddy, which is my uh, my partner, who's also done a phenomenal amount of work uh, with the NDNDP. Um, but what we've created is actually this group of people who share experiences and share challenges and share struggles and are able to organize about it and are able to able to support each other as we try to fight back um and there's something just really uh, moving about it when you know whenever whenever we actually get to do something whenever whenever 
I get to hear another neurodivergent person say, thank God you guys are doing this or, or whatever else, it, it is completely mind-blowing uh, that we've, able, we've been able to make that space um, and, and to take that space up and to, and to keep fighting, uh, especially in the face of huge industries um, like, the, like the behavioral intervention industry. Uh, it is really against the interests of that industry for neurodivergent people to start talking to each other. And, and to start getting connected and to start saying, actually, we don't have to let this happen to kids like us. We don't have to let this happen to our community uh, and, and to actually start fighting back against it. And now we've connected with folks in every province. We've connected with folks all over this colonial wreck of a planet. Um, and, you know, we've also connected with neurodivergent uh, political groups uh, like the neurodivergent labor in the UK and neurodivergent labor in Australia. Labor in Australia, of course, um, uh, having just formed government uh, in the recent election, and the Secretary of um, Labor Australia uh, of the party is ADHD, openly, and is part of, of neurodivergent labor. Um, and the fact that there's stuff like that worldwide and that we're, you know, following in the footsteps of these people that are doing such amazing work and that we're going to get that done here in Canada too, it's absolutely wonderful. Uh, and it's hard. It's not easy to fight, you know, your own people. It's not easy to have to say, look, you guys, I know you care. I know that you believe the things you do about autism because you care but those things are wrong and we need to do better. It's not easy work. People don't want to hear that. People don't want to hear they've been wrong about something that has felt so virtuous to them, has felt so good and so pure for them. Oh, I'm just supporting autistic children. So when I come in and I have to tell them, okay, it matters how. It matters what support. It matters because if, if that quote-unquote therapy is somebody who actually sees this kid as a series of behaviors, you know, they're behavioral intervention people, their names, their title is behavior technician. These are people who are exposed to three-year-olds for sometimes six hours a day, five days a week. Uh, behavioral technicians, they're there to, I don't know, make your robot child act the way it's supposed to. Um, and that's, that's scary stuff. Um, and the fact that support for that often comes from what is the left, what is supposed to be the progressive side of politics. Yeah, it's, it's awful. It feels terrible. Uh, but let me tell you, it feels a lot less terrible when you're in a group of other neurodivergent people who are ready to fight back and support each other, not just in political fights, but in personal ones, in making sure people you're, you're getting the medical care that you need and the supplies that you need and making sure that you're being taken care of when disasters have struck. Uh, and when you have that group of people that are, that are ready to, in the long haul, because this is a long-term fight. Um, and so being able to actually build community like that means everything. I think not just to me, but to everybody within the NDNDP, it, it's, it means quite a lot that we're able to do it. So a lot of, a lot of the activists I've talked to speak of building communities. I think that's kind of pivotal to a lot of 
to organizing personally, right? Is first job is bringing people together and making sure your spaces are safe and, you know, um, protecting them and so folks can grow and share and fight. But um, I imagine in our work as organizers on the left that perhaps sometimes we're making spaces that aren't all that friendly to autistic people. Is there some things that a lot of us are, you know, I was in a, a meeting the other day and very progressive folks, but there was just this huge encouragement to turn on your camera. You had to turn on your camera. It was kind of like you weren't really participating. And immediately I thought of how uncomfortable that would make me on certain days. Um, and so I felt forced to for, turn my camera on. But, you know, things like that. Are there are there practical things that we could do better as organizers so that our spaces are more accommodating? Well, that's an excellent example, for sure, making sure people don't have to turn cameras on, um, partially because uh, m my experience is um, different than some people's in that I'm actually pretty comfortable uh, being on a Zoom and just, like, not looking at either myself or the other person uh, because I've... I, I am really bad at things like eye contact and uh, facial, mo like moderating mo my face. I'm just not good at that because um, uh, it, ta it takes so much motor energy that then I can't pay attention to other stuff. Um, and uh, the other thing is being able to like stim. So a lot of autistic people will flap our hands or things like this, or we'll rock back and forth. Um, people in meetings will all the time see me rocking back and forth. Um, and things like this are seen as like disruptive or inpatient or things like this. Uh, and for that reason, a lot of people would prefer to just not have their camera on because that's something they really have to worry about. Um, so that's a good example. Another example, um, inviting autistic people uh, somewhere or sending, uh, like, a, attempting to reach out to autistic people when you have, uh, when you have taken the words of non-autistic autism advocates as fact. Um, so this is something that people on the left do a lot is they hear a parent group or something that's called an advocacy group, um, say something and they will, uh, repeat it without critically thinking about it and without looking into it and seeing how the people most impacted actually feel. And now this is the true across cases. There are like books by white people about, white fragility, for example, which is like, okay, yeah, for sure. Why, why would I listen to a white person about that though? Um, because that's not, that's not something a white person is actually going to be the best source for. And so that's not something I'm going to do. I'm going to turn to books by black people. If I want to hear about anti-black racism, you know, I'm going to turn, um, I'm, I'm going to turn to resources uh, by trans folks when I want to hear what trans experiences are like. Um, and for some reason on the left, it's okay, uh, to hear from non-autistic people about what autistic lives are like. Um, I don't know why that's okay. 
I know it has been the case with other marginalizations before, absolutely, and with other oppressed people. Um, that's absolutely the case. Uh, but I, I do not understand why people on the left act that way towards disabled folks and towards autistics. And I should say all disabled folks, because it's not just autistics. It's also non-disabled people who fight so hard for things like uh, Bill C-7 to expand access to MAID. That's another thing to expand access to medically, uh, uh, medical assistance in death. Um, and that's something that, again, the biggest advocates for that, and they call themselves that, um, the biggest advocates for those expansions are not the people that expansion's going to kill. Yet, those are the people who are seen as experts. Those, those, those people who, you know, are disregarding how many lives we're going to lose because of that expansion. Um, and lives that could have been led uh, ha happily and comfortably if, they, if people were given the resources and accommodations that they need. Uh, and again, it comes back to this. <laughs> uh, and now, yes, the the further expansions upcoming, um, the further expansions include uh, folks whose only diagnosis is mental illness. Uh, it also includes mature minors, uh, which means parents can decide that their disabled child wants medically assisted death. Obviously, that's horrifying. The, the the expansion the expansion to made was supported by all the major parties in parliament. It was supported by the NDP, the Liberals, and the Conservatives opposed it some of the time, uh, and some of the time didn't. They they opposed it on religious reasons, which is not the right reason to oppose it. Uh, it's one of those like don't. It's not that we agree on why, but this is bad. That's gotta hurt though. Um, I mean, it's like when the conservatives have the right take on a bill, and you just don't want to agree with them for the wrong reason. Because I cringed when you said yeah. that. I was hoping it was fully unanimous. We could hate them all no, equally. <laughs> no, Dang. sadly, um, honestly though. It really is scary stuff. The the liberal government appointed a a a. a <laughs> the liberal government called a speaker, for the deliberations about the expansion just this past week, uh, and this guy that they called up uh, has advocated for parents to be able to kill their kids with medically assisted death uh, as young as five years old. I should say. The thing that got me really into advocacy, you know, I thought I was, because of these stigmas, you know, because I had only been in mental crisis for a decade and a half, and I didn't consider that serious, um, I considered myself, like, not disabled enough to really talk about it. And I, I should just be quiet about it, because I don't have... I, I'm not severe enough to actually talk about being disabled. Um, and the thing that really actually got me to understand that disabled people's lives are valuable enough and my own life is valuable enough that I need to acknowledge how hard things are and I need to acknowledge how many accommodations I need. Um, and uh, yes, you know, for listeners, my life got considerably, considerably easier and I had considerably less challenges once I acknowledged I needed a lot of accommodations and started putting those accommodations in place. Um, but until until I went to an event, which was 
uh, co-produced by Autistics United Canada. Uh, Autistics United Canada is an absolutely incredible national um, advocacy uh, and education group who have done some really important work, and I really, really, I, I really respect and appreciate Autistics United Canada. Um, and they had uh, uh, put on a, an event for the Disability Day of Mourning. Now, this is a day uh, every year. It's a, an annual uh, vigil uh, for disabled children and disabled adults, disabled people who were killed by their caregivers, Phil aside. Um, there's a, an advocate who did a, a speech at this Disability Day of Mourning event that I, I happened to get into because I, at that time, was trying to figure out what resources there were for autistic people around. Um, and I, I found this event and I, I went to it. And uh, Rishav Banerjee, who is an, another amazing advocate, uh, writer, and researcher, um, uh, Rishav did a speech where he talked about how the the murdered disabled child is vilified and the parent is given praise because they had so much on their plate. Um, and this is the case when parents, you know, decide that their autistic non-speaking child is just so miserable that they would be better off deceased. Um, then, you know, now... Now they're going to have a legal route to do that. Um, and that means that non-speaking autistic will never have the chance to develop a system of communication. We will never get to learn what was in their brain. They may never go on to do the things that they might have done. They may not go on to do the art, to write the poems, to do the paintings, to have the relationships that they would have had. And it's because people have decided that disabled folks' lives are not valuable and can't be valuable. Um, and... Unfortunately, you know, we talk about misconceptions and, and oppression, and that's the, that's the root of it. That's ableism right there. Um, and this is something, C7 is something that has, has really called into sharp attention the lack of disability justice education on the left. Um, ever, it's been being talked about for, you know, more than a year and still there are people on the left saying, well, I support medically assisted death. And disabled people have to say, yeah, we, we do as well. Um, but lifting these safeguards right now and expanding access to children and people whose only diagnosis is mental illness and people who do not have a foreseeable death and people who are only suffering because they don't have the housing and the supports and the, the living support that they need to live a, a, the good life they have in their potential future. Um, instead, these people are going to die. Um, this is something that was brought to the federal NDP convention. There was an emergency resolution last year at the convention, uh, which asked the party urgently to specifically to consult with autistic people about uh, support of things like uh, uh, C7 and the National Autism Strategy, which is a, a piece of legislation which is being written by non-autistic people and non-autistic organizations, um, obviously. Uh, and as, 
as these go through, the the problem is that it's not, again, it's not that I don't like this. It's that it's deadly. It's that this expansion, you know, I can talk about how autistic people are stigmatized and uh, ostracized and treated horribly everywhere from school to workplaces. Uh, And then I can tell you that we're about to make it so anyone who's depressed can immediately qualify for MAID. I can't, we can't build a community with disabled folks. We can't help disabled people if we're just offering them only death and nothing else. Um, and unfortunately, yeah, that's, that's a message that seems not to have resonated yet with much of, uh, much of the left. Uh, which is in in Canada, which is a really startling thing. Yeah. You know, we're getting near the kind of end of our session. I imagine I'm going to have to have you on again to talk more specifically on um, some campaigns that are going to shape up. But if you could have the allyship of listeners, if you could call them to action to help with your work, um, what's one thing or, you know, what broadly could you tell them that they where they need to start? Listen to non-speaking autistic people is where I would start. Presume competence of non-speakers and listen to non-speaking autistic people. There are non-speakers who have been absolutely unbelievably patient as social movements and politicians have talked over them and walked over them and they're I cannot tell you how much non-speaking autistics have been through because of so-called progressive people's insistence on listening to non-autistic people about what experiencing life as an autistic person is like um I'm sure I can like provide some links that can be in the description of the podcast to some folks that folks can listen to and folks that people can check out. I highly recommend uh, Communication First and the International Association for Spelling as Communication as starting points because those uh, th- those are organizations that have uh, like endless resources from non-speaking people because when we talk about, you know, oh, this kid, he's crying and running away, so we have to deal with this behavior... Uh, we're missing the experience of that human being. We are missing the experience of that person. And if we can go to somebody else who screams and runs away when things are overwhelming, who has developed a system of communication, who has been given access to communication, and we can ask them, what is that experience like? What do you need in that situation? That is worth one million times more than any temporary behavioral performance of not having that experience and so yeah my number one thing is get your information from non-speaking autistic people about autism and I feel like I have to add the disclaimer to also believe that yes like whatever the okay I don't care how absurd you think the accommodation sounds you know a kind of light a texture um just believe them yeah because that is my biggest frustration is trying to 
have folks understand and be empathetic towards it in order to provide the accommodation. Well, that doesn't make sense to you. And again, it's about the experience of it, right? It's, it's about recognizing that other people who have different kinds of brain than you and different kinds of nervous system interact with the world differently than you. And when you can accept that and acknowledge that actually a lot of stuff becomes less frustrating and it becomes a lot easier to maintain relationships and communication and all kinds of other things. Once you can acknowledge the way I would experience this situation is not necessarily how that person is experiencing this situation. You have to listen to that person and exactly right. You have to believe that person about how they are experiencing the situation because otherwise you're not doing equity. You're not doing justice. You're doing ego. And that's not what our movements are supposed to be made out of. Yeah. Yeah. No, why do you need the accommodation? Because I think like a lot of people don't realize why, right? They just know, I don't know why that light bothers me, right? Yeah. I. It just does. Yeah. I don't know why I get home at the end of the day and need to decompress for half an hour before anyone asks me a question. I just do. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> and, and yeah, having to defend that, especially children who most certainly cannot articulate why something needs to be turned off or on or whatever um, is incredibly frustrating. So like, although folks can advocate for themselves, I'm so grateful that there are people that, you know, take this onus on themselves the way that you have, the way that, you know, other guests have to. One of the other things, one of the other things that really sucks is I would rather have given this interview to a non like I would rather have brought a non-speaker up and been like hey do you want to do this interview um but right now on the left um it's not really safe for autistic people to be advocating um the reason that I push as hard as I do and the reason that I'm making the space I'm making is because non-speakers and autistic folks in general right now don't feel safe engaging in a lot of political stuff. You've got to hide yourself there. You can't, you know, there's so much ableism. There's so much inaccessibility um, that a a lot of folks are just tuning out. Um, And unfortunately, when we do things like we have this, yeah, this actually kind of ties into the idea of like disability fakers, this is, again, another conservative ideal that a lot of leftists, unfortunately, also hold, which is this idea that there are people taking advantage of accommodations and disability supports, which is absurd because you have to fight literally like through fire and brimstone to get supports and to get accommodations. Uh, and I don't know anyone who would do that, like just to get an accommodation that didn't help them that they didn't need. Um, that's just not how that works. Um, and to, unfortunately... To me, that makes no sense at all because I would rather hide it yeah. than um, be then open and the, beg for an yeah, accommodation. Yeah, absolutely. Then beg and then then to to lose your, you know, your sense of, of uh, authenticity and all of this because you've got to, you know, go through these dehumanizing... 
um, trials just to get accommodations. Um, and yeah, the asking why is like it's a certain kind of cruelty, right? You've you've got to try to, especially for folks who have never received adequate support, who don't have the words to advocate for themselves. Even if you are speaking, if you've never been actually exposed to the types of accommodations and the the types of sensory experiences and all of this, then how on earth are you supposed to know what to ask for and how, um, let alone to explain, like, I can't explain the, the physical internal reaction that's happening, you know, when the air conditioner's so loud that I can't think. I don't know how to explain that past that. Uh, but that's 100% a thing that will stop me from getting any work done all day long. Um, and that's not something that folks for whom that is not a problem can really understand. It's not something that people have a reference for. Um, but we've got this sort of trend of people that will say things like, oh, everyone's a little neurodivergence insert here. So people will say, oh, you know, everyone's a little ADHD sometimes or something like that. I hear uh, that all ev- the time. Everybody's I hear that somewhere the on the spectrum or whatever. And the problem with phrases like that is it leads these people who are not autistic, who are not ADHD, to believe that an event that has happened to them allows them to understand what it's like to live as an autistic person every single day. And that's just not the case. Uh, they just don't have that frame of reference. Um, and... That has, I, I really believe that's been a huge driver. That kind of language and that kind of attitude has been a huge driver towards people saying things like, why would you need that accommodation? We all have trouble with bright lights sometimes. Why would you need that accommodation when the rest of us can just deal with it? Um, and it's because we're not experiencing it the same way at all. Um, but yeah, there's this belief that, you know, well, I experience things, so that's how it must be. Um, and yeah, that, that absolutely screws people out of accommodations all the time, uh, which is awful. I, I actually also really appreciate the point about like having to go beg for accommodations um, because I really do want to highlight like it's an incredibly dehumanizing and disrespectful process in every institution to go there and get accommodations and to, to go there and be openly disabled. Um, there aren't institutions that have made that an empowering process. Uh, I, can't, I can't name one uh, other than like, you know, folks, folks in grassroots organizing groups, like people like the Disability Justice Network. And um, I, I would hope some of the work that I do as well, but I, you know, I'm not the one that gets to say that even. And I, I have to recognize that. So like, what does that look like? Maybe actively providing accommodations, you know, um, people are likely to need uh, asking ahead of events 100%. what accommodations you know organizers can expect rather than waiting for somebody to come and say I need yeah subtitles right I need subtitles can you put them on I mean that those are just small kind of common sense things but I found like just adding an accessibility field you know to an invitation absolutely so that yeah nobody has to figure out what the mechanism is and then following up on it, right? Because another problem is that sometimes people will put something like a field in, but then they'll decide it's not useful because they aren't following up on it. 
uh, they, the gatekeepers, are, are like, oh, this system's too hard for me. I need to just not do this, which is unfortunately what happens in a lot of institutions and organizations, um, is that non-disabled people really don't understand how vital those accommodations are and the space to make those accommodations. Nobody wants to go to an event and have to go to, you know, get in through the back door because there's no ramp at the front and then it's so loud in there and there's absolutely no break and there's no, you know, access to things. No, nobody wants to go through that. Um, but we force people to by not proactively thinking about it. Um, and I also don't want anyone to believe that you can you can foresee every possible accommodation that's necessary. Um, it is very wise to get in the habit of, you know, a semi-universal design. Uh, a lot of folks don't have the, you know, especially grassroots groups don't have resources to redesign every single one of their uh, bits of work all at once. Um, but attempting to make sure that all of your spaces provide a base accommodation group or a base list of accommodations um, and then having that space where you, pe you know that people will be listened to and people know that they will be listened to. And having that space to say, hey, what doesn't work for you? If there's something you need, please let us know. Here's the resources to let us know. We're not just going to say, oh, email us. Um, we're going to actually... Email the accessibility officer yeah. at an email address uh, I'm going to mention once and not put in the chat. Exactly the kind of thing. That doesn't happen, um, does it? Uh, wouldn't it be horrible if it did? Wouldn't that be so exclusionary and, and anti-equitable and oppressive if that was how people were going about things? Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it, it is unacceptable stuff and it goes on every day. So, Lulu, I've asked you a lot of questions, but is there anything that... I didn't ask that you definitely wanted to share. Yeah. Uh, one thing I will say is being an autistic advocate in supposedly progressive spaces has been really illuminating for me. Um, and I, I say that because autistic people are presumed to be incapable no matter what we are doing. Uh, so I'm currently in a master's degree doing actual research on autistic youth's well-being. Uh, I've also been studying autism and autistic people for something like a decade. Um, I've been a peer supporter for autistic people through the Mood Disorders Association of Ontario. Um, and I work with multiple advocacy groups across Canada and across the world. Um, but because I'm autistic and because I say I'm autistic, there are politicians who will say, I can't possibly know anything about autism and I can't possibly be telling the truth because I'm speaking. But that same politician will then go to a non-autistic speaking parent and believe what that parent says about autism. Now, that parent is not, hasn't been studying autism for 10 years, isn't currently researching autism officially with government funding, and hasn't 
been involved in the autistic community, doesn't have any adult non-speaking autistic friends that they don't have power over, but that's the person that's going to be listened to, not the autistic expert of the field. Um, And that the only reason that that could be happening is ableism. That's what that is. That's prejudice and ableism. Um, And unfortunately, that's running rampant. Uh, And so, yeah, the, the other thing I would say is just that people need to leave their biases and assumptions about what autism means and what autism feels like to autistic people behind in the past because that's where the information they formed those assumptions from is from the past. It's ancient history at this point. Um, So anybody who wants to talk about autism, whether you're a politician or, you know, even a a non-autistic disabled advocate or somebody else, um, you can't go in with assumptions that you learned from people who aren't autistic. You can't go in with assumptions that you've had backed up by uh, sensationalized media you know, you, you have to go into these conversations recognizing that what you've learned about autism was wrong. Sometimes it's, it sucks to hear that, that what, what we think we know about something is wrong. Uh, but what most leftists know about autism is simply not true. It's not how autistic brains work. Um, and so that's, that's what I would say is I, I really need people to understand that. And there's nothing wrong with you for not knowing about autism. There's nothing wrong with the people who are mistaken, uh, who have been taught wrong. Uh, that's, that's not, you're not the problem. But if you hear this stuff and you read these resources and you go check out these non-speakers that I'm talking about, uh, and you still side with non-autistic people about this political issue, about this justice issue, then you're kind of the problem, you know? Um, And so I I do need people to start thinking about that and to start putting that in, in perspective for themselves because, like, as the tide turns, it's gonna be really embarrassing for people who are fighting the tide. You can't stop it. This is a justice issue. This is a human rights issue. Uh, And believing hard enough that you're on the right side of it, that's not going to cut it for you when it actually comes around. So I just really, really hope that people can think about it critically uh, before they throw support behind things, you know, that are actually really ableist. Yeah, I think there's a lot of unpacking of the ableism. I think that's one of the last isms for us to really explore, because like I said at the beginning, I have never seen um, that absence of nothing for us without us yeah. in any kind of policy formation, except when it has to deal with disabled folks. And you made a comment there where folks need to understand autism better and um understand the autistic experience better. And uh, that also goes for people who've gone undiagnosed for some autistic people, because those, those misconceptions permeate 
everybody. Their society wide, yeah. Yeah, that ableism isn't just enabled people, unfortunately. Um, and it has such a devastating impact. Um, it does. It does. Um, a recent study, um, and again, this is, you know, I one of the things about being autistic is that uh, most autistic folks um, uh, really treasure input and information in a way that non-autistic people don't as much. Uh, I've found. Um, and uh, one of the things there is I like having backup for what I'm saying. Like, I like knowing what I know and knowing why it's the case. Uh, I need to know why something is the case if I am going to actually think that I believe it. Um, and when we don't know why there's why this disconnection keeps happening between people or why this environment that other people seem okay in is so stressful to us or why if all the other kids can sit in the circle why does it feel so bad for me to sit in the circle and if you don't know that you haven't had that explained to you that your circuitry is processing things different than other people's then you you think there's something wrong with you um and a very recent study which is really horrifying in sweden um found that the majority of people hospitalized for psychiatric problems when they were properly screened were ADHD and autistic people. Uh, And out of the 34 autistic people that they found, only seven of those people were diagnosed autistic. And this survey found 34 in this one hospital. Um... Those people were undiagnosed their whole lives and they went through mental crisis because of it. And there's no denying that that's how that goes. When you're autistic and you go through the world and you don't have accommodations and you're expected to act like everybody else, it leads to mental illness. It leads to mental crisis. Uh, And we know that. So we really need to back away from behavioral services and people who want us to believe that autistic people's suffering and struggling comes from the autistic person's own behavior. That's just not how it works. The struggle and the suffering comes from the environment and the society, which is consistently oppressing and pushing autistic people down to try and turn them into something they're not. And that's what actually causes the harm. I totally wish more people understood that perspective, Lulu. And I we're working I on think- it. <laughs> I, yeah, I was just going to say, I, I know that is your mission and not just your mission. So, I, I you know, you had a bright moment. There. I know it was a lot of doom and gloom, um, but you had a bright moment there where you said, you know, we have done a lot and you have. And we can do more. That's the thing. I, I don't believe there is a limit to how much autistic people can, can achieve and neurodivergent people in general. I know we talk a lot about autism here because that's like a sort of ta- – political issue at this moment. Um, but very soon, so will be uh, ADHD and OCD and um, um, things like uh, dyslexia and dyspraxia and all of these things, because people who are neurodivergent are running up against these barriers. And these barriers are being made taller right now. They're being made thicker. They're being made harder to scale. 
um, by this sort of doubling down on a behavior focus, uh, this industry will expand. It will not just be autistic people that, that the, the behavior intervention industry targets. Once they have successfully legislated themselves into autistic people's lives, they will legislate themselves into other children's lives. They will legislate themselves into a disabled adult's lives. They will legislate themselves into poor people's lives because those poor people just aren't behaving well enough to make the money they need. It's going to expand. This is an industry which is a threat to every marginalized community, and it needs to start being treated that way. Lulu, I want to thank you so much for your time again and again. I honestly could never thank you enough um, on a personal note, but professionally, you know, you you spent time here in informing our listeners. You spend countless hours trying to better uh, the NDP and the policies there, and then just all of your work um, in the neurodivergent community and the academic work that you do. So I thank you very, very much. Um, thank you so much, Lulu. Like in all things that we do, there is a team behind Blueprints of Disruption. I want to give a big thank you to our producers, Santiago, Hello Quintero, and Jay Woodruff. Our show is also made possible by the support of our listeners. So if you appreciate our content and would like to become a patron, please visit us at www.patreon.com. So if you know of any work that should be amplified or want to provide feedback of our show, please reach out to us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. Blueprints of Disruption is a project of New Left Media, an independent employee-owned company.